Welcome to the Future Perfect Tech Podcast. We're here today to talk about the strategies around growth ventures. Should you build, buy, or partner? Glenn Almendinger, president and founder of Harbor Research, and Mark Roth, founder and managing director of Spinnaker Venture Partners, are going to help lay out the pros and cons to help you innovate with minimal risk and cost. Mark has been involved in the identification, funding, launch, and development of innovative early-stage entrepreneurial ventures for the past 15 years. Mark has over 20 years of experience leading and developing venture-based startups and providing leadership on new product development, innovative management, and business origination. He has held leadership R&D positions in Rockwell International, Honeywell, and Englehard Minerals and Chemicals. Glenn has over 30 years experience advising the leading OEMs and technology companies on growth strategies. He serves on the boards of numerous emerging tech startups. Welcome to Future Perfect Tech, a webinar and podcast series by Harbor Research. Each month, we'll be having discussions with the leading experts in smart systems and the Internet of Things on innovations in markets, technologies, and ecosystems that are working together to build a better future. I do believe in my... I'm here with Mark Roth of Spinnaker Venture Partners. I've known Mark for, for many years, and today's podcast is focused on rethinking the way new growth ventures are created, particularly by large established businesses, like be manufacturers, OEMs, service providers, or even existing classical enterprise software players, but players who are searching for new ways to drive innovation and growth and trying to figure out how to do this more or less organically or supplemented organically and move that whole story forward. If we look at the world and the way it's evolved over the last 20, 30 years, in many respects, the whole nature of the way people think about software and the whole notion that software invading everything and kind of flipping the value models and manufactured products to having more soft value than hardware value and if I think of services businesses, productizing and, and, and creating all sorts of extended capabilities and, and things that supplement those services and make them more tuned or personalized to uh, users and, and different constituents. But if software is eating everything, I, I think it's also freaking out many of these traditional players in the sense of how do they organize software, both a venture and in an organic context, but also just as a thing that they can grow and drive value from, and, and what's the relationship between the new venture or the new capability, the new software that they're trying to build with their existing core business. And I'd say that if I bring the time frame up to real time and think about the last few years, the nature of data, analytics, modeling, AI, and everything else seems to be beginning to um, change the very nature and fundamentals of how software actually gets realized. And so with all these changes at hand, we thought it'd be a good idea to talk about new growth ventures and the options and opportunities there are for organizations to think differently about, about how to approach um, their challenges with software and new technology. We think there's lots of opportunities for new thinking on this subject, and that's uh, why I've invited Mark to join me. Mark, I know you have a long history of data and analytics and all sorts of things, so you, I'll let you pipe in here. Glenn, first of all, thanks a lot for inviting me today to join you in this conversation. I appreciate it. I think certainly software's invading everything and eating everything and what's really become now, as we all know, a super data-driven world. It's networked, it's connected manufacturing, and this whole issue of how are people going to take all this data and turn data into information and the information into insights and then drive value from the insights is at the essence of the intersection of analytics and AI and the whole Internet of Things or industrial Internet of Things in this data-driven, digital thread kind of environment. 
So I think the really big question and the really big challenge for especially the traditional providers of manufacturing or manufacturing of things or people who are in the OEM or whatever is really the opportunity to realize the new lines of revenue that they can appreciate as a result of the value that can be driven from this whole movement of data to information to insight. Mark, we uh, collaborated years ago when you uh, spun off an early venture in the uh, product data management and collaboration space off of a very large parent company. When you reflect on that now, does any of that experience have anything meaningful in the current environment? Yeah, I think it really does. I think although it was a, a while back, I think we probably were plowing some new ground on new business models as to how a company can go and move in this direction to turn this information into value or participate in the world of software and AI and analytics. And I think in, in looking back on that, it was really being able to take the big, bold step of forming um, an independent enterprise using other people's capital from the venture capital community to help that large multinational public corporation realize the full potential of what could have come from that technology that was not really core to their business. This is all wrapped around, of course, hardware technology and how to move hardware into the automation space. My going in thesis about this whole subject is that if you, you look at the history, particularly of corporate venturing, so again, large manufacturers, OEMs, service providers, et cetera, you know, if you go all the way back to the uh, run-up to the internet bubble burst, I'm not going to remember the figures correctly, but we went through an analysis for a client in the early 2000s after the internet bubble burst, and we actually added up all the invested money and what happened to it and essentially came out with a negative return on all these corporate venture capital funds. And so, of course, that pendulum swung away from corporate venture capital and probably really didn't pick up in earnest again until after the big recession, you know, the 2008-12 timeframe. But it's raging now. And my view of this is if you get into the corporate development thinking of large or established and kind of old economy uh, businesses, the, the thing I first discover is they typically have one and a half modes of thinking about new growth ventures. And in fact, the notion around new innovation and new growth ventures is, is really implicitly buried in their own troubles with organic growth, period, which is they've spent the last 30 years acquiring things. And whether it's a corporate venture fund or participation in that on a partial basis or just simply acquisitions, my argument is that leaves many other options on the plate that, that are either under-investigated or not even looked at at all as potential ways of, of, of thinking about these new ventures and collaborating with an existing startup, spinning businesses off like yours was, organizing things that collaborate with existing innovation labs, establishing incubators, um, accelerators, lots of different semantics around these things and what they mean. But in many respects, my view is that the aperture of the lens that they're looking through at new growth ventures is not very wide, and it doesn't include many options that could either reduce risk, even speed time to market, leverage existing internal resources that wouldn't get leveraged internally on their own. Any reactions? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think what I've seen certainly in the last, oh, I guess, five years or so in particular, maybe a little bit more, for a while there, we, we saw the corporate venturing concept come. And as you said, it didn't perform so well. And then it came back and now it's all the rage. But the way to think about that, I think about it, at least in the companies that are looking forward, it seems to be reborn. 
as a whole new function in the same way that the CTO ran the innovation management and the open innovation management kind of process, say 10, 12, 15 years ago. Now we see this on venturing where the idea of trying to drive innovation driven growth in your business through let's call it venturing and new opportunity development and new venture development for these forward-looking companies has many spokes to their wheel. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. So you may have a corporate venturing officer capability. What you also, though, may have in addition to that, and most of them do, is alongside their venturing opportunity, say like ZX Ventures, they also run their own incubator accelerator on a global basis to help go side by side. Then on the third leg of the stool is, do you really want to be doing this as direct investing or do you want to be also in a limited partner relationship with professional venture capital community, institutional venture capital players and so forth? So really building a deliberate multi-dimensional strategy where you're working across the spectrum of direct investing, allocating money where it's a funds of funds approach to let some other folks invest on your behalf based on whatever your critical agenda is, running your own accelerator incubation process or supporting and participating as a sponsor of incubation processes is really important. And then in addition to that, we're starting to see where there's things like Greentown Labs, which is in Somerville, Massachusetts. It's the leading sustainable technology incubator in the United States. It's a nonprofit. But if you look there, the number of large corporations now who have not only become sponsors of that in order to have access to all of the different technology-based businesses that are being born and developed there is really very interesting. They're not just sponsoring, but they then are parking full-time resources, full-time people in offices within the space to really become become part of these ecosystems and communities. So that's on the front end of the forward-looking folks. But then a lot of parts of the industry are just struggling fundamentally with what to do with this data-driven world, what to do about the fact that there's this big digital thread running through their marketplace. And as machine builders or as people who do enterprise software in the classical sense, OEMs, I think there's still a lot of struggling trying to understand Where's the data in our product? Where's the data in our business? How that digital thread, digital stream of information flows, and how can we really learn how to monetize that? And I think unless they start to look to very outside their organization, to other folks with ideas, it's going to be very challenging to find where the opportunities are to monetize the information economy, if you will, around the connected enterprise. If I go back maybe just a half step, and say your example of where AI has a front-end collision with, you know, an equipment OEM, like mission critical spaces, like mining equipment, manufacturing equipment, infrastructure equipment, and smart cities and buildings and that sort of thing. It seems like most organizations tend to go through a fairly predictable process of discovery. In other words, that's where any number of the associations you mentioned can lend itself to a lot of context and richness and things that they can learn about and set themselves up to understand what's actually really going on. And as that discovery process hones itself, it flips to what I would describe as, you know, really access to more direct experiences in this space. So if you just take a class of investment in the growth venture context, like minority equity investments and, and a lot of what I've seen in the 
more traditional corporate VC fund world where I get a lot of information and I get a lot more access when I make the investment. But it's not what I'd say is the third phase, which is where I start to get to a need to do purpose-built and purpose-designed things that actually serve my strategic goals and purposes. But if I go back and say, maybe the label, at least the label I've been thinking about is this is a multimodal venturing. I need to do multiple parallel things in order to learn, discover, gain access to real world and, and street level experience. But, but then I also need to think about extending my thinking into various venture constructs and vehicles that actually allow me to do purpose-built things. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think the whole issue is there's kind of two sides of it going on in my mind right now. On one side, with respect to what you're talking about here, is even if you're a large public organization when you're performing and you don't have any problem with access to capital, the importance of other people's money in the venturing world is extremely valuable. It's the thing that can catalyze new thinking and new ideas. The second thing is that the people who are going to really take those ideas forward and blaze a new trail in this day really expect to have the opportunity advantage or the opportunity to uh, participate in the value they're going to create, which really means we have to find ways to get them outside the traditional organizational context of the business and allow that to spawn its own thing, its own business, its own life, its own financial life, but have a way in which for, to bring it back as a strategic acquisition or a strategic recombination later when it happens. And that's really hard for a lot of folks to think about. Agree, agree. But this reminds me of, it's interesting if you go through the cycles in the history of corporate venturing, you go all the way back to the 90s to like Thermo Electron's uh, spin-out model or Safeguard Scientific's quasi-merchant bank and holding company, but focused on developing multiple parallel platforms and opportunities. It seems to me a lot of that experience was lost because its proximity to the internet bubble burst was probably in many respects too close <laughs> and therefore got tarred from a reputational standpoint. Do these things actually work and can they work? And I, I think they were quite innovative in many respects. But if I bring it into the current time frame, I think there's lots of players that could benefit by spinning things out and then essentially setting up various valuation and, and other kinds of rules that allow you to take the thing back in. This is from your own experience in the PDM business. When SDRC spun off the real first formal large PDM venture metaphase, it bought the thing back three years later. And I think in many respects, that's where these venture modes and these venture vehicles set things aside, create different incentives for entrepreneurs and other kinds of uh, skilled folks to do things and come together and combine that with even elements and resources and skills in the parent, but do so in an autonomous way, which always brings me back to, I've always called it the proximity rule, <laughs> which is as you create new ventures and new entities, you always have to be cautious that the thing isn't so far from the parent that the parent realizes no value from it over time or too close where the parent has a much higher probability of throwing a wet blanket over the thing and trying to rule it through its own policies and internal practices. And so I think that that contention can either be creative or destructive <laughs> at the end, obviously. But I think, but paying close attention to that, you can create lots of flexibility. It's like, you remember Enphase, right? When they were doing their machine-to-machine um, -machine communications, whatever, pre-IoT comms services story, they had struck a deal with a, a large chemical manufacturer to uh, automate their supply chain, and they had had 
essentially preset all the valuation rules under different escape hatch conditions if the uh, parent decided it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, but but largely served the purpose of being able to develop all new comms platform for the parent while in fact remaining autonomous and and did so in subsequent cycles after Qualcomm bought them. Exactly. So that was that's a really good example. And I think today what we see happening is interesting is what we see Schneider doing with Avita. Because as we see these transformations happening now, what we're also learning is something else is happening through this world of software eating everything, a data-driven world, the intersection of AI and analytics, the idea of the citizen solutionist and the citizen developer, the concept now of no-code AI solutions. We see some new entrants now, C3AI, for instance, or Tulip coming out of MIT. Groups that now are understanding how this new economy of the data-driven, service-driven business, where we have this intersection of AI and analytics really lives. And so the whole business model is different. So you have to think about it from, I'm not selling a piece of capital equipment or a software license, I'm selling you a service. And all this stuff is going to market as a service. The one thing that I've observed is that, of course, everybody has stood by and watched the uh you know, emergence and evolution of the SaaS business model. And on its purest form, those things make lots and lots of money and are very profitable business models. The further we get into this data analytics and, and modeling chapter, the more I realize that's either a variation or a different business model than what we accept from a, a classical SaaS model today. And these are things that you're talking about a big equipment manufacturer or, or similar, I think they barely understand their own business models today. <laughs> Never mind any of these new software delivery models. I think there's some great examples of this to just illustrate what's happening and where people are being challenged to think in new ways. And then once they have these thoughts of new ways to do things, the question becomes, how do you really instantiate? How do you instantiate that thing to happen? Do you use other people's money or the venture community? or venture studio models and venture launch platforms. One example is a really large company out in Iowa that's a provider of all of the additives to animal food that really cause the animals food to perform properly for their customers. In order to deliver their product, they make equipment, okay? Equipment that doses this stuff into their customers' uh, environments to provide their products, which are chemicals, additives, nutrients, nutritional additives to animal food. But what they finally figured out is there's a lot of information and data that's tied up in this automated equipment they have. And one way to look at it, as most people do first, is they say, oh, I know what to do with that. I'm going to have a great service model. I can improve my time to repair and do predictive diagnostics and predictive maintenance and make my service model better. But how do you really monetize that? And in this case, this company understood that, but they had one more thought that came out of the commercial sector that was even more interesting. They said, how can we take that information and feed it back to their customers such that their customers had a better understanding of the value add of what they contributed to their business with what they provided that customer? And secondly, then how can they charge them money to have that information of how they are adding value, how are they helping them to better use their nutritional additives and the equipment that doses them to make sure they have higher performance. A second place we're seeing that is in the water treatment world, where in one case we're talking to a company that um, is making water treatment systems that 
are at the front end of the pharmaceutical industry to make high purity water. Okay, those are smart systems. They have PLCs in them, all that good stuff. They sell hardware. They sell water treatment subsystems. First case, as usual, okay, let's be connected to our system for a remote service model. That's nice, but that's where everybody starts and often stops. But the big value add they've discovered as well is how can they now monetize that to their customer in terms of long-term service agreements and maybe instead of selling them hardware, sell them high-purity water. That's guaranteed at a certain level of purity. Changes their whole business model. And we're seeing the same thing on the back end in the wastewater treatment business, for instance. So these are companies that are consistent, that are generally in the business of selling pre-packaged technology. They're like OEM, machine builder style businesses, selling capital equipment, trying to navigate and learn how to monetize the data through AI and analytics that's coming off their machines into a new line of revenue for themselves. But doing it by yourself is incremental versus doing it as an independent enterprise that has its own value proposition where the value of the enterprise through converting data information to value may have a higher multiple than you have as a manufacturer. Yeah, I mean, my joke has always been if you go back and look at the history of the Internet of Things, IoT, whatever. Of course, the further back in time you go, the larger the value of the asset had to be to justify networking it, right? I always used a baseball analogy. <laughs> Remote service was like first base, right? And that's if you were selling expensive equipment and hardware, you, you could easily get the first base. And remote service was like turbocharging the efficiency in their delivery of, of their service and their aftermarket capabilities. Outside that basic efficiency value, there really wasn't anything that was particularly new or unique for the customer, right? You had to get the second base, third, or home in order to create new value for the customer beyond your remote service efficiency. And so I think there's this fundamental misunderstanding that remote service is a commodity pretty stable thing to go do, valuable thing to set up as a foundational element to contribute to all this. But second, third, and home plate are, are largely, you know, essentially data modeling, analytics, and all the things that begin to add value on that. I know we talked about machine metrics recently. Reading my mind. It's machine metrics. They're a great example of a recent company, recent startup in Western Massachusetts, right? It's well-funded. What did they do? A pure data-driven play. They drop in, they pick up all the data from the machine tools, old legacy machine tools and brand new machine tools. They bring it up to a cloud solution. They serve you back analytics and AI capabilities that help you improve the utilization and performance of how your assets are being used as a user of these machine tools. The people on the outside looking in to how they're monetizing this data stream are the people who make the machine tools. It's amazing. And they're building an an extremely high-performance business with very high multiples on the value of the business, just on the data. Driving the benchmark value of that data, in other words, how I'm running my machine versus how my peer and a near-peer machine runs his, and anonymizing that and making that available as a, a residual to what they're doing, which is a pretty remarkable story. It is. It's really interesting if we compare that to, if I can use names, FANA. When they tried, I think, what, maybe five years ago or so to introduce FANUC 1, I think they called it. And the idea was they were going to capture all the data and put it on the cloud for the people who use their you know, machine tools and controllers. That really hasn't gone anywhere because it was about monitoring the system in place. And here's a small 
disruptive startup, really showing how to drive value out of that data stream with AI and analytics and serve it back. So who's got the more productive business model and why? It looks like the entrepreneurial mindset is one to exploit risk. So the machine metrics guys, they just had to be successful or die. But if you're an executive in FANUC, you're really supposed to manage risk and mitigate risk. So you probably make the opposite decisions about how to proceed based on your perspective, based on your organizational context. But I think there's a strong argument that autonomous entities, and, and, and again, I can invoke my proximity rule, but that autonomy is the thing that essentially leads to that kind of more risk-driven environment and thus more creativity. And whether it's an internal incubator, accelerator, center of excellence for digital this or digital that, to me, these are all incremental, very risk-managed kinds of responses to a more aggressive spin things out, combine things with other things external to the company, set them up in an environment where, you know, essentially the people developing the business are, are running it in a much, much higher and more aggressive risk and creativity mode. And I think this is where, again, arm's length participation and partnering and things like corporate venture funds is fine for those upstream stages of trying to discover and learn things about how the world is working around all of this today. But don't get you to the uh, the rubber meets the road story around autonomous and uh, independent entities and ventures. Yeah, I think there's a lot of economic potential created there, both for the, let's call them the host, the big corporations that are willing to participate in something that certainly has a lot less control than they're used to, but has an enormous amount of upside, both for them and the people who are going to participate in that. Which leads me back to a dangerous term, but I'll use it anyway, platforms. In other words, the notion that I can organize intellectual property, my IP or skills and IP and capabilities, be it software, sensing, systemic or otherwise, but organize that that domain knowledge and capabilities in a way that it can essentially get to an autonomous entity and and my ability to uh, leverage the degrees of freedom that that has over doing it internally. But this is really conquering what I just call the disease of the core business. The thing that drives all that risk management, like your FANUC example, is the thing that kills the ability to, to ever do this very successfully internally. And it's not a universal rule, but I think it's pretty close. I agree. I'm a big fan of originating new ventures, starting new ventures, doing them in collaboration and with corporations is a great way to do it if it's really arm's length and it's allowed to have, as you say, a real autonomous nature to how it's organized. Let other people provide the money. Part of this is also because success has to be the only option for that entity. So it can't be held within some sort of a large corporate sponsored incubator, the people all have their existing jobs, the people who are involved or who might become involved are connected to the corporate, the host mothership, so to speak, structure, and therefore have continuity of time and in service and all these other things. You have to be able to walk through the door, have it locked behind you and know you can't come back. And the entity has to know, and the technology entity has to know it's being severed from the mothership. It's got to be successful on its own or die trying. I think there's a huge amount of energy and power and drivers for success that come out of that requirement. And you don't know what's really going to happen there. When we did the spin out, you you mentioned that I was involved in initially my first one, 
That's what happened. The door locked behind us. We couldn't come back to those jobs. We had to make it work. And the really interesting thing, it ended up being in a business that was substantially different than what we thought it was going to be. It has to find its way to where the opportunity is in the marketplace. I think that's a a God-dictated rule (laughs) of all ventures, which is the uh, originating business plan of not being the business realized just because of that discovery and iteration. Rule number one is the business has to be, the, the entity, the venture has to be autonomous enough that I'm not going to choke the thing to death or I don't have the ability to choke it to death. Two, to your point earlier, if, if you find other people's money to help fund the thing that's getting spun out or, or created out external to the parent, then it's not subject to the uh, rules of the sole parent in the way it evolves just because of the presence of other investors and all the fiduciary things that flow with that. And to me, the third is, that's back to the proximity rule, right? Which is, I think there's tons of assets, skills, domain knowledge, and capabilities in a lot of these large organizations that could be set outside and, and can thrive where they're largely supplemental to their core business internally. And which leads to what I think of as creative combinations. If I set, set those skills and domain knowledge and capabilities outside of the parent, what else can I combine it with to help accelerate or make it more differentiated or unique with other players, other entrepreneurs, just other people? And I think that's one of the most fertile grounds that tends to be, at least in my observations, extremely underdeveloped and, and underexamined. I agree with you 100% on that. I was just working with a company here in Massachusetts that's developed as part of their core business, which making industrial seals and things like that developed a sensing technology around acoustic sensing, I'll call it, that is really quite innovative and is supported by a a very deep core competency in understanding how to interpret and understand this kind of acoustic information. So what do they do? They decided that they should launch this as a new business within the company. And the next thing they did is figure out how to package up a piece of hardware So how do they go to market this? They're trying to sell it as a piece of hardware, as a package device that sends data to the cloud. They spent a lot of money rolling their own analytics and data sources that are on the cloud that you can subscribe to to understand how the sensor is taking data and turning it into information that's meaningful to its customers. This kind of a business needs two things. One, It needs to be outside the context of the current core business so they stop thinking about it as a hardware provider and start thinking of it as a service provider who's providing a new kind of information and insight in the world and let people pay for the value of the interpretation of the data and give you the advice for free, for instance. And secondly, they need to partner with the right right other group or company. As you say, a, a creative or catalytic combination of a company that already understands how to deliver visualization, data visualization and analytics to the world, where now the addition of this new source of information, this new quantitative information has value add that you can charge more money for as a service. So it's just an example, a very specific example of what you're talking about is how do you really monetize this sensor, but what's the sensor? The sensor is a new form of information that people didn't have access to before. And what's the value of that information in the context of different applications? To monetize that as a service, an information service is a whole different business model than seeing how many devices I could sell. 
Well, which says at the end of the day, we've often told clients to do this, which is I've always called it the roadkill exercise, which is tell me about the last five products you produced, how much they cost to to develop, right? And compare that then to acquisitions you've made, because in most of these large parent organizations, I think the hurdle rates and the need to buy businesses that already have enough revenue realization to validate their skill, and they overpay to build the the things that they build internally. They overpay to buy things that they think uh, might lead them to this uh, new promised land. And if you just compare the economics of that to any number of these kinds of spinoff and autonomous or independent entity stories, particularly to your point where you can go essentially if the, the opportunity is attractive enough, you can go find other venture investors or other partnered corporate investors to uh, share the risk. I, I just think the economics are overwhelmingly in favor of that autonomy. Yep, there is. And, and that brings to, to mind the idea that there are certain forms of venture capital. So if we bring this over to the financing side of things, there are certain groups in the venture world that this becomes their investment thesis. There's one out of Pennsylvania, which has been very successful with the idea of finding who has that really new and innovative technology that's going to make a a definitive difference. And then before they would invest in that startup, if you will, or that venture, they go and find themselves a pre-existing business that has a really good history with a legacy set of customers that represent an excellent target for that new business. And they finance it with a simultaneous merger or creative combination of the new technology and the pre-existing legacy business that has this nice book of business and reputation with the market. For them, it's been a very successful way to bring technologies to market. I think the economics are wildly favorable. And again, an ancient story, we worked for Computer Vision, the inventor of CAD computer-aided design and drafting systems. <laughs> and, and in the late 90s, they were a dinosaur. They were rotting, but they had all sorts of PDM technology internally, which they spun out as a separate entity, invited two VC firms to invest in it. And when PTC bought them, and largely this is what Windchill was, this is the core of the modern PTC. I remember talking to one of the investment bankers. (laughs) I said, so uh, how do you view the value of uh, PTC's acquisition of Computer Vision and Windchill? And he said, we paid $300 million to do this. Probably 290 of it was Windchill and 10 of it was Computer Vision. (laughs) But all sorts of valuation mechanisms can lend themselves to being accelerators themselves in terms of resourcing these kinds of autonomous entities. So the trick is in the financing of all this, in my experience anyway, and in the specific transactions I've been involved in is we have to find an appropriate way for the ultimate objectives of the institutional venture capital investor to be somehow aligned with the uh, desires looking forward to strategic desires of the large corporation, because on the surface, they don't align. The venture capital guys want to make as much money as humanly possible. They want to be able to invest in something that goes as far as it can and get the market price. The corporation from which it came is going to want to be able to have it back as a strategic acquisition at at a discount or, or at some controlled price, not be open to market pricing. And somehow finding how to do that is the trick. And there are now really good mechanisms to allow the venture to go out, be market priced, create the same opportunity for the investment community and for the entrepreneurs as it would have as an independent venture, but still allow 
the corporate sponsor to have a way to get it back at a significant discount to market. And this all has to do with how the initial structure of the equity of the spin-out goes. So the spin-out still has a complete life of its own. It's using other people's money to the max. And then as that really in three to five years becomes strategic, you could have a call option to buy it. But that call option's at market. But the fact is you started out with maybe a 10, 15, 20% stake in that business. You just take it off the balance sheet. Don't put it on the balance sheet. You expense it as you go. And that becomes a straight 20% discount to market if you want it back. So looking at things creatively from a financial perspective is how the autonomous spinoff or the autonomous new venture can be organized with respect to the corporate host is a very important element as well so that everybody has the same opportunity incentives as they go forward. That whole issue with parent wanting to pay reasonable price, not full market against the investor's desire to realize full market. I've always called that the blade that cuts both ways. But I do think this is a, a really uh, good illustration of what I describe as just multimodal venturing. Part of it's in the ability to, you know, essentially spin up, spin off, whatever, but multiple parallel ventures that can attack any number of opportunities and prosecute them. But that the wiring diagram and the way that thing gets created is playing to the accounting rules of both the investor and the uh, parent. Absolutely. So in the end, the trick is to really build a robust corporate, if you will, venturing, venture development, opportunity, execution kind of platform or function within your company that's as robust as you might with your research and development and innovation function so that it has multiple spokes to its agenda, that there's the corporate venturing, the limited partner capability, an ability to participate in things like incubation and acceleration, maybe externally as well as internally. It all comes down to how you're going to leverage other people's money and the very powerful economics of the venture community to create new value, but at the same time have ability, ability to bring that back. Yeah, you raise a good point because Many of these, if I call this, hey, let's rethink ventures, and I end up describing it as multimodal venturing, which is really just a way of saying creating multiple parallel experiments could be very lucrative, <laughs> right? To me, it's really just taking a, a, a collection of existing practices and extending them a step or two further than we have, like the internal audits and hunts for IP that I might license to somebody as an example of this. The ability to look at the different work streams around innovation and an R&D organization, but just think of them almost purely in the context of independent ventures, and then drive these kinds of practices much further into realizing commercial value in the marketplace for the things that uh, have been developed. Especially where the success of these technologies or finding your way to how the latent and trapped value of whatever it is you sell can be unlocked into new lines of revenue needs to have a way to find its way to the market through very different business models than the one you're used to executing within the mature business. Right, which just means at the end of the day, just from a risk and venturing standpoint, draw a pretty clear line in the sand between what equals the core business <laughs> and things that I might do to augment, supplement, extend, perpetuate that, but keep those completely out of the field of vision around the things that I might create ventures around and, and the opportunities that 
really fit into that. So all investments in any large parent organization really are either core expansion or they're entirely new. And it's where we get to the new territories is the place where you really need to think about this notion of new and independent and autonomous entities to go drive those values to fruition. Yeah, totally agree. I think there's a great deal of value in being able to think that way and by really leveraging the world of incomplete information on uncertainty, leveraging other people's capital, leveraging the very creative talent pool that's probably outside your organization to attack problems that are core or future, certainly on the five-year horizon, what you'd be in strategic in your marketplace. Very fair. So I think this gets down to understand where the core lies versus what's new. It's, it's, it's really taking a much more expansive look at all the different vehicles and mechanisms that might be available to go explore creating new ventures and capabilities around new opportunities. And, and I think to your point, the relationships and interactions with those relationships that you can find in the marketplace, and that could be an individual, it could be a peer business, or it could be a, a startup down the street around the corner. All of those interactions will lead to a lot more effective and I think much more accelerated understanding of the new business models that inform these opportunities. Yep, I would agree. I think another direction that we've seen that's been really very productive lately is the partnering with things like incubation platforms. I'll go back to Greentown Labs again, where corporations can come in there and sponsor challenge-based innovation. So what they're really doing is they're coming in with the platform of Greentown, figuring out what really are the strategic challenges as they look out into their market, and then turn those around to a very open call in the community of entrepreneurs and say, hey, who has a solution to these kinds of problems and let them compete to see who can really respond to that challenge. What you've really done is you've created an opportunity for a lot of people to create new independent businesses that may provide innovative solutions to problems that you have in your core business or that you see on your strategic roadmap. Yeah, I think we've begun a, a chapter where these innovation labs will become innovation communities so you can find lots of skills and different people and existing businesses to collaborate with to where they live within a sphere of domain or, or some kind of context that has some degree of interrelatedness and the ability particularly in the early steps, to go stage ideas and test ideas and new capabilities in a way that, that the, the cost to do so is really not very substantial. It's really the mode that you're investing in as much as the level of investment. And I think there are huge opportunities in these kinds of interrelated communities to um, foster a whole new generation of, of ventures and different kinds of mechanisms to grow. Exactly. So is how do you build a portfolio of real options within the area of innovation-driven growth, exploiting the entrepreneurs and the venture capital and the resources that you have available to you in the community. So if you stand there from the corporate perspective and, and you're an executive, one way to think about this, it, it comes right down to creating a, a portfolio of real options. So as you point out, the small investments you're gonna make to do that, the things you're going to encourage with those small investments Having me party to that in the early days and the early stages is going to be very rewarding in the future rather than waiting to see what really is the right solution or right direction that was going to matter and try to buy your way into it with an acquisition. Which says that when you look at the role of corporate development in a lot of these large organizations and, and parents, that's the place where 
you need this new sort of hybrid persona, somebody who actually understands all of these different venture modes, like a bumblebee that they can pollinate lots of different ideas within and across their organization that can find these new entities to uh, drive that growth and understands how to build relationships with a myriad of external folks that whether it's funding mechanisms or access to customers and markets or just skills and knowledge, that changes the classic corp dev role from I'm the M&A guy, <laughs> you know, really changes the nature of that persona and its skills and its disposition and its capabilities, I think, radically from what we've seen. Yep, I agree. Either you have to reconstruct the way corp dev works, or you have to accept the idea that you're going to put a new function in place. Blow up the old one and build a new one. <laughs> you'll still probably be having the M&A stuff go on, and that's fine. It's very classical but you do want exactly this kind of very open portfolio-based approach to growth where you're placing bets on things that are going to happen on the outside that you don't quite have control over all the time. Mark, listen, I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to have this conversation. It's been great. Um, as always, we tend to feverishly agree on a lot of things and observe many similar things going on, but it's fun to share perspectives. And so thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. And I certainly appreciate the time. Don't forget to check out harborresearch.com for more insights on smart systems. This podcast was edited and produced by Christy Zoak and moderated by Owen Jennings. Harbor Research is a growth strategy consulting and venture development firm with over 30 years of experience working with leading manufacturers, service providers, and technology developers to discover, design, and develop smart systems and Internet of Things growth opportunities. Visit harborresearch.com to learn more or follow us wherever you get your podcasts.